Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Dharma Toolkit podcast. First of the new year, really, for 2021 with me, Chandradasa, from the Buddha Centre Online. And very nice it is, too, to welcome you back to a series. I wanted to say a new series, but it's not really. It's just a kind of ongoing, rolling, kind of whenever we can get these out, we get them out, series of podcasts. This one is kind of special apart from being the first one in the new year because it's the first in quite a while that is attached to one of our home retreats. For anyone listening who's not familiar, part of what we offer on the Dharma Toolkit is just a range of things that you can do at home to support your sense of connection to other human beings, to support your own practice of the Dharma through the pandemic, through lockdown particularly. And sadly, of course, whole swathes of the Northern Hemisphere, at least, are headed back into lockdown, various forms of restriction. So we're going to be here again with you as long as we need to be, and I'm sure beyond in many ways too, to offer you some resources, always for free, always freely given. And Home Retreats has been a part of that since the beginning last March, which seems like an awful long time ago. The chance just to work at your own pace at home on a Buddhist theme, something to check in with every day either in depth or just as and when you can in amongst running your busy life, working with the kids, homeschooling, trying to learn how to work from home, all that stuff. So wherever you are, we hope you're doing well. We hope your family and loved ones are well. It's nice to be back with you. And our guest, first guest of 2021 is an old friend of mine, Paramananda. He's waving to me, actually. I should remind him at this point it's audio only, so nobody's going to see that. But I'll describe it to you. He's waving to you. Paramanda's been a friend for many years, and not just to me actually, but to Dharma Chakra, which is the team I work for and which runs the Buddhist Centre Online and this podcast. Paramanda's helped us out loads in the past with recordings, particularly his very well-known book on meditation, Change Your Mind, which he did a three-part audiobook with us back when tape cassettes were still a thing and online responses to pandemics were like science fiction. Anyway, he's been very generous with both his time and his support, actually, giving us the royalties from those books back in the day. So it's really nice to kind of look forward to 25 years or so and reconnect with Paramanda around our next home retreat, which is called The Alchemical Heart. And The Alchemical Heart is our home retreat running from Friday the 15th for a full week all the way to Thursday the 21st. And as usual, we'll be posting some resources in advance on a nice, rather beautiful webpage for you to use as a resource. But the main thing with this home retreat is going to be continuing a trend that we've adopted more recently, which is just some practice to do at home. And each day on this retreat, Paramanda is going to be leading two meditations that will work for you at least once, whatever time zone you're in. So we've tried to structure it so that people in the Northern and Southern Hemispheres can take advantage of the chance to practice with Paramananda. We'll hear a lot more about the details of the retreat as we go. But first, welcome Paramananda. Really nice to have you with us from West London on a winter's eve. Thank you, Chandadasa. Very nice to be here with you. Looking forward to doing a retreat with your listeners. Thanks for volunteering to do a home retreat with us. We're going to talk about your very, well, I find it intrinsically mysterious title of The Alchemical Heart. It presses all the poetical buttons in my wee Scottish soul. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first, I thought it'd be quite good just to hear a bit more about you for people who are not familiar with you. How long have you been a member of our particular community? Well, I was ordained in 1985. So I suppose that involved two or three years before that. So since the early 80s, I suppose, yeah. So that's approaching 40 years at this point. And um, I know. 
<laughs> sorry to sorry to rub that in. It's hard to believe, really. Yeah. And it's taken you far, hasn't it? It's like you began in London, right? And then moved eventually to San Francisco, co-founded the San Francisco Buddhist Centre. Yeah. It's been it's quite an arc, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. So I got involved in West London and, well, actually initially I got involved with the London Buddhist Centre, but quite early on I moved over to West London and started off of working in a gardening cooperative. I had all these co-ops and then based in London. And I got ordained and then for the next six or seven years, I was in West London and helping running the centre and teaching. And then me and a friend went out to San Francisco and helped set up a centre there, yeah, for there for nine years. When I came back to London, I got really involved with West London and helped them for a while. In that particular last 20 years. <laughs> it seems funny to say the last 20 years. I suppose the main thing I've been doing really is leading retreats that became increasingly my focus. So leading retreats both in England and other countries. Yeah. So if you were to go back and talk to little Paramananda back in 1985, do you think that Paramananda would recognize the life that you have now, the kind of arc that you've gone through your practice? I think he's actually probably would bigger than I am now. I've probably shrunk a bit now. You know, in a funny sort of way, yeah. Right from the beginning, the first retreat I went on, Tamarati was leading that retreat. I don't even know if I should say this, maybe it sounds a bit odd, but it was the first ever Buddhist retreat I've been on, you know, the first time I learned meditation, two-week retreat. And at one point he said, oh, maybe some of you would be doing this one day. And I had this light bulb moment where <laughs> I thought, yeah, that, that's two pretty good things to be doing, you know, I don't know why. So actually, I'm not that surprised at my course. I seem to be just really taken with the whole kind of retreat thing, you know. Hmm, it's interesting to hear you say that. Obviously, we've had a lot of conversations over the years about the different phases of your life or practice life. And one thing that strikes me is just thinking about your early days as a social worker and kind of a background in social work without getting too diverted into a side topic since we're here to talk about retreat but do you think there is a kind of active element that relates to the broader sense of what social work might be in teaching meditation and leading people into self-resourcing form of practice like Damarati just said that to you and here you are in a life where you've been taught to fish as it were. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. You know, these words are very tricky, aren't they? But my initial response to what you were saying, I think actually for me it's more political and psychological. But then, of course, those are kind of bogus categories in a way, aren't they? Because, you know, political is very psychological and psychological is also very political. But I think I saw it more from a political, I suppose, yeah, you could say social, yeah, point of view. Mm. It's interesting. We did an episode quite recently with Vadaka from Estonia. He's an Englishman, for people who don't know Vadaka, with a background, strong background in the British labour movement and the unions. And it was really fascinating talking to him ostensibly about economics, Buddhist economics, and his journey from a union man to a Dharma practitioner. But it touched very readily on the kind of political and the cultural the social, the economic, all of it, because there's something so active about Dharma practice and meditation, mm-hmm. contrary to the marketing of mindfulness as this super passive thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was a psychiatric social worker when I got involved with Buddhism. 
but I was very into Lang and Stasnet or I don't know what the American equivalent of Lang. And I saw that as a very political thing. There is something, isn't there, about what can actually really touch people? You know, the people side of politics, the polis. And we've mm. been quite interested in that here, thinking about what is community when everybody's online. It's almost something, it's an idea, isn't it, that you have to tap into? And yeah, there is something quite deeply political about choosing to align yourself with this kind of activity rather than another kind of activity. Yes, I think for the whole of my life, really, certainly my Buddhist life, there's always been this kind of interaction between the psychological and the political in the sense that this might sound rather too complicated and convoluted, I don't know, but I kind of believe now, in a way, I would say they come together in a poetic and a funny sort of way, because now I think the deeper you go into yourself, so the deeper you go into the psychological, the more you spill out into the political, if that makes any sense. So I'm using political very loosely here, and I'm certainly not talking about party politics, but I am talking about I suppose how people live their lives, you know, the potential people have of living a genuine and authentic life. You know, in a way, I would consider that a whole point of politics as well. Of course, that's not how most of our politics actually works, but that's what we want out of a political system, isn't it? And, you know, if you take something like the American Constitution, I mean, no way using these words like freedom. Of course, that's the same word that the Buddha used, isn't it? All this, the taste of freedom. So though these days I don't really identify very strongly with any particular politics, I still think of what I do as political. Does that make any sort of sense? It does make sense. It made me think of, well, one aspect, people familiar with you as a teacher will recognise from your approach to meditation teaching and just actually your approach to the way one holds one's being in meditation is that you've got a kind of poetic, not just sensibility, but almost root to the way you approach practice. And when you were speaking there, I was thinking that subtler version of what politics is, you know, the stuff that really matters to the heart, the stuff that has got the taste of freedom versus the stuff that doesn't have the taste of freedom. It seems quite natural to me anyway, listening to you, that that would naturally emerge as poetry when it comes to expression because that's almost like the only kind of language that's up to it which is why traditional politics don't always meet our ideals right because they fail to live up to themselves whereas poetry still can in a certain way this brings us very sort of neatly really to the whole idea of alchemy and the heart because what's so interesting about alchemy is of course on one level that they were doing something material in the world but at the same time, they were working very deeply on their own psychology, as if you take this more spiritual interpretation of alchemy that seems to have a lot of historical credence. You know, we all think of alchemy as the transmutation of lead into gold or creating the elixir of life. But I think a careful reading of some alchemical text makes it quite clear that what they're talking about is an inner transformation. This is made completely explicit in the Eastern alchemy associated with Taoism, but I think it's there in the Western tradition as well. We're working in a physical world on metals or chemicals, but 
are also were consciously working on themselves. They consciously understood that they were involved in a spiritual journey, if you like. And that in and of itself is to me a poetic approach because they're doing both sides of something. You can't literalize what they're doing. So it becomes kind of poetic. <laughs> that isn't too convoluted. No, it's, it's good, actually. I was just thinking, I don't have the quote to hand, but there's a quotation by Marsilio Ficino, the mm-hmm. Renaissance philosopher, sort of almost philosophical alchemist in a way, where he talks yeah, specifically yeah. about the transformation of self through something that sounds a lot like meditation, although it's obviously within a sort yeah. of at least westernized, Christianized tradition, and very much in touch with that sense of the, what you have to work with is the lead of your soul, as it were, and the transmutation through the fire of experience into something that is rendered valuable, not just for yourself, but for the world, mm-hmm. and the relationship to God in that sense of, again, not something purely externalized, that aspect of experience. Yeah. In a way, one of the things we're fundamentally working with, aren't we, as Buddhists, is to realize there's not really any interior as opposed to the exterior. You know, we're all equally within the exterior, aren't we? If you see what I mean. To think there's a sort of interiority to us is to fall into the idea of some fixed soul, isn't it? I guess so. I was just thinking when I was listening to you say that, I was thinking, whoa, we're like five minutes in. We're already into the deep subtleties and nuance of interiority versus exteriority. Neither this nor that. You can't say it's both or either, you know, all that stuff. Well, exactly, exactly, yeah. To me, that's a poetic thing, isn't it? That's what I mean by poetic. You can't ever really quite pin it down, can you? No, exactly. Well, I was just thinking, so let's wind it back for folk. It sounds like that's the quite rarefied way of talking about it, but what really struck me about the title for this retreat, I know you've done this retreat a number of times, and we've got a series of recordings from one of those retreats that we'll be making available for people taking part. The alchemical heart is not a sort of rarefied idea on its own. What's implied is quite rarefied in a certain way, but it's a very beautifully grounded image, isn't it? The alchemical heart. Yeah, it's all, to me, a piece in the sense that what we primarily work with in this retreat is creating what we could call a vessel, yeah? In alchemy, as within most spiritual traditions, really, the agent that actually transmutes is beyond, you can't rationally get to it. So the way we get to it is actually through the body, in a sense. So from an alchemical point of view, you could say that the human body is a vessel. And so we're working with creating the vessel. I mean, to put that in more conventional British terms, we're just saying, well, we're working to create the conditions for the possibility of change. You can't force or make the change happen there. So actually, a lot of what we do is to work with the physicality and the felt aspect of our experience. Some people might be familiar with the idea of the cremation ground in Tantric Buddhism. It gets talked about quite a lot in our community. And there is something quite embodied, actually, about that, like going to the charnel ground, you know, being around the bones of well, your experience. Really, yeah. God, if you really did it, I'd be very embodied, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be really yeah, embodied. Yeah, some desolate charnel ground in Tibet. Oh, Christ. Oh, I would be embodied. <laughs> yeah. That's probably what we should be doing, really. Well, we'll have to make it resume, won't we? 
That's right. Well, I'll just reassure our listeners that we won't be doing that during this particular retreat, at least not literally. And I suppose that's one of the things is we're entering a realm that isn't literal in that way with you. And, you know, to bring it back to something grounded before we talk about what people will actually be doing on the retreat, it's not trivial knowing you that where you've landed with your own meditation practice that makes you lead retreats called the alchemical heart. That's not just you doing some branding and some cool poetic marketing. It's actually coming out of your experience of why meditation meditation matters, why it works. So can you say a little bit about that? What in your own experience over the years of practice, 35, 40 years of this kind of tradition has led you to the point where this is the natural form of expression of your own practice when you want to share it with others? It's a hard question to answer really. I mean, I do quite a lot of different retreats and I have done that particular retreat with that title more than once. That's quite unusual. I think I've done it probably for eight years. As one of the retreats I do each year at Rivendell Retreat Centre, partly because I'm working with someone called Mandalava, and we've done it together probably seven times. I'm not sure how many times. I don't always use that particular metaphor of alchemy. I mean, my interest in alchemy goes back quite a long way. I suppose I first got interested in alchemy through Jane Hillman's Alchemical Psychology essays which are it's absolutely brilliant I think and then when I did a PhD and one of the chapters in that PhD was looking at alchemy as part of what I was referring to as the western wisdom tradition you know so I've had quite a long interest in alchemy as a symbolic metaphor and also the other strand for me has been Taoism or Taoism I was a Tai Chi practitioner before I got involved in Buddhism and I had quite a strong interest in Taoism. And in Taoism, that alchemical metaphor is very much used. It's also a set of low way towards the equivalent of the Buddhist enlightenment. It's very physical. I mean, it's very much a yoga. So it's very much used in the human body. I'm quite convinced that the way towards insight is through the body. That's the nearest bit of reality we've got to really become intimate with. You know, the intimacy and insight, very close. That's why we have it happening imaginatively in the chamber of the heart, you know. That places it in the center of our body, the emotional center of our body, or you could even say the poetic center of the body. I can't even remember what question I'm trying to answer. (laughs) I think you're answering it in a roundabout way. How does your own body of experience and practice lead you to these pathways into meditation? And that evocation of, I like the chambers of the heart almost as the shrine room. I was going to say, it's always a kind of changing thing for me. I've just finished doing a retreat for Rivendell. On that retreat, for some reason, what was emerging very much as a central motif was this image of the body as a mandala, you know, and the heart as the sense of that mandala. And in a way, that's also quite an alchemical um, understanding of what we're doing and very much involved with image and body. I think what really interests me these days is the relationship between the body, image and normal consciousness and how image is the intermediate 
screen that fell sense and my normal consciousness. Without going too esoteric, it occupies a position of a Sambodakaya, the second body or middle body of the three bodies. So it mediates between the physical body and the intellect. And would you say that's the dynamic in a way of what people are going to experience if they turn up for this retreat and they sit down in the weird crucible of Zoom twice a day or once a day? They're being mediated in a certain sort of way. I want people to find that centre, you know. I suppose these days, I mean, again, I don't want people to take this too literally, but I suppose these days I, I kind of trying to work with the idea that people have a source within them and this is what we call a centre, if you like, or, you know, what Carl Jung referred to as a self. And it's possible to become more intimate with that centre, rely more on that, live more from that. And that's somehow very intimately related to the physical as well as the mental. The heart sort of mediates between those two. And the language, if we can talk about the language of the heart, I suppose it's the language of image. Just as I suppose I'm using heart here as representing the unconscious, aren't I? You know, so when we go to sleep and the ego relaxes, what happens is the unconscious produces image, call them dreams. And so I'm interested in accessing that material when we're conscious and what effect that material can have on us. See, I'm giving a completely wrong impression of what the retreat would be like because here I am talking theoretically about the retreat, but some of the things I'm saying in this podcast, I probably have never quite articulated in this way before because that isn't the way I work at all, really. I'm not going to give people a lot of... We just get on with meditating and we get on with learning how to be intimate with ourselves. The alchemy takes place in the individual, you know. We just create the vessel, if you like. We just see if we can open ourselves up to the poetic. You know, another way of thinking about the poetic is possibility, isn't it? There's more than one possibility, you know. It's a bit like Suzuki's idea of beginner's mind. You could say the beginner's mind is very poetic or open. But we just do this through very conventional, in a sense, meditation. The breath itself, when we start to encounter the breath as a fully felt experience and also open up to the poetics of the breath. I mean, the breath is such an amazing thing. It's a completely alchemical thing in and of itself. We are literally breathing in the outer world, aren't we, into the inner world. We are literally participating in creating the Earth's atmosphere. I know only to a minuscule degree, but we are involved in actually creating this planet's atmosphere simply by breathing. We're having an intimate interaction with trees and plants and recirculating this oxygen. It's a completely incredible thing. So if we can fully open ourselves up to both the imaginative, and I don't mean made up, but, you know, if we can really open our mind up to what it is to breathe in and out, and at the same time really feel what it is to breathe in and out, we've got two very dynamic elements of change there. 
we can have a different relationship with our own body, our own self, and we can have a different relationship with the world. So again, we've got this common together really of the psychological and the social or political in our own experience. So it's a very exciting thing to do. But you know, on the other hand, what we're actually doing is just very down to earth. We'll be chanting, we'll be learning to work with the posture. Most importantly, we're learning to relax and trust something. Exactly what it is we're trying to learn to trust is hard to put into words. Well, I do put it into words by talking about trust in the earth. So of course, that again is an imaginative image and metaphor. So we're working with the body very physically, but we're also working with the body imaginatively. And I would say that's the alchemical way, working with both the material and the imaginal. Yeah. Mm. So what we're going to do is create a space that can hopefully function as yeah, a crucible or an alembic or the vessel for people to come into that kind of relationship you're talking about. And in real yeah. life, what it will be is two sessions, twice a day, morning and night, for a couple of hours each. So, you know, a good three and a half to four hours space every day where you can come and inhabit that question that you've raised about, well, what is the relationship between the body and the imagination? How can we access the same mind that dreams when we're waking? And that is a sort of profoundly exciting thing to consider. It's not something we always do every day routinely to give ourselves permission to take that seriously as a use of our time and our energy and as the most important thing we could be doing. While you're talking, I'm also thinking, well, you could just talk about it in terms of accessing longing. I find this so interesting. You know, why are we involved with it, spiritual path, to whatever extent we're involved with it? And what's the longing at the centre of that? Alchemy, symbolically, it's gold, isn't it? wanting to turn things into gold. What does it mean for us to turn into gold? You know, what does that mean? What's that longing under that? I don't think there's an answer to that, but I think in a sense, when we couldn't see our chemical heart, it's about coming into the heart. When we come into the heart, we come into longing, longing and love. Maybe our longing for love, I don't know. It is a very beautiful invitation, isn't it? As you were saying, coming into a space where you're invited to try and learn to trust that longing, to try and learn to trust, not to be second-guessing it all the time or prejudging it, etc. I'm aware of one aspect that some people listening might wonder, like if you're not already comfortable with this kind of invitation or this space of meditation, it might seem a bit too formless or it might seem a bit like, yeah. well, what about basic mindfulness? Are we just going to sit there and daydream our way through four hours? Of course not. But what would you say is the experience of the tradition of the mindful tradition in this means of sitting down with that open space of the heart? What is it about that that you think is compelling? Well, funny enough, I think what I'm doing is traditional formal practice. Really, I've worked, everything I do, I feel, is based on the two basic meditations we generally do in Triratna, in the mindfulness of breathing and the metaphalsana. And all I feel I've done over the last 30, 40 years is to try and explore those practices and recognise the potential in them. So I'd say it's all based in mindfulness. 
it's all based in love. But to be truly mindful, of course, our imagination needs to be engaged. And very obviously, to really practice the metabhavna, our heart needs to be deeply engaged. There's no meditation without imagination. And this gets us into deep water because this word imagination is so morphic. It's used in so many different ways. But in the way I use it, it has quite a particular meaning. It's still ambiguous in a way. But anyway, I suppose I'm trying to say that I feel what I do is based in the basic practices that we do. And no meditation can take place really until someone has learned a certain level of mindfulness. So we're not just sitting here. We mainly work with that through the posture, again, through the body. I mean, this is a very strong tradition within the stream, within the Buddhist tradition, arguably brought to its height in the Chan and Zen school of Buddhism, where the posture becomes a basic way of working. And I think I've been very influenced by that understanding of what meditation is. The first thing I'd say about meditation these days to the people is meditation is something we do with our body, the whole of our body. And it's primarily just taking the right attitude, the right physical attitude, and the right mental attitude. From our chemical point of view, that would be equivalent to setting up the laboratory, you know, setting up the conditions where genuine inquiry can take place. I like the laboratory thing that brings in these kind of things that are often polarized, the poetic image of the alchemist, actually working in a context that's about the ability to observe carefully what is actually going on and note the properties of it and note the quality of it and remember, note down what's arising so that you learn from the experiment, as it were. Yeah, it's so interesting. One of the reasons that alchemy is such a seductive metaphor because there's so many things in alchemy that seem to mirror ideas within meditation. So, you know, one of the principal ideas in alchemy is repetition. And, of course, it's interesting that you know, a lot of people get up every morning and they sit in a meditation practice and they follow the breath. There's so much repetition as meditators. And then, as, as often said in alchemy, the alchemist is the master or mistress of the fire. And again, equivalent, you can have this to what we call right effort in Buddhism, knowing how to apply the right heat to what you're doing, the right energy to what you're doing. Meditation is very much an energetic enterprise, physical, energetic, and imaginative enterprise. And all those qualities are there in alchemy. Alchemy just gives us a slightly different way of talking about things that we talk about in meditation, but a way that hopefully rekindles strength of a kind of beginner's mind or receptive to these images that perhaps are a bit more unusual for us or a different way of looking at things. A lot of people, when they first start meditating, have very positive experiences, very strong meditations early on. And then they kind of die out. And this is because habits replace repetition. So this is an interesting thing in itself. You know, the difference between repetition as a positive thing and habit 
and comes in and undermines the positive nature of repetition, which is only useful insofar as we do it with an open mind. That's a great distinction. There's so much I'd like to talk about this. I mean, obviously, just to keep it sort of grounded with the retreat, it sounds like we're going to be creating a space that people can enter and do something pretty down to earth with each other every day, being embodied, meditating together. There well, is a transmutation happens, but it's... I might be saying too much here, but if I'm entirely honest, of course I have some idea what I'm going to do. But the main thing I try and do when I lead a retreat is to come into a relationship with the people on that retreat. Of course, this is slightly different over Zoom, but actually my intention remains the same. When I sit down and try and lead a practice, I am engaged in that practice. I'm trying to be fully embodied in that practice. So I never quite know what's going to happen. Another practice, as you know, I've been losing my sight for a long time now, and probably for the last 15 years. I've taken out the practice of memorising poetry. So these days I've got quite a large door or treasury of poems in my body. And I'll sit down, and I won't necessarily sit down with any intention of using a poem, but if it comes to mind, usually I just let it come out. So I'm trying to work in the moment on a retreat. I'm not coming in with a tight schedule. I'm not really coming in quite knowing what's going to happen because I want to work in an embodied way. And it seems to me when you work in that way, that seems to give other people permission to meditate in that way, to trust their own inner experience. So I'm not really quite sure what goes on on retreats. I've been quite intrigued that people seem to like me coming in and just doing what I feel like doing, and it seems to sort of work some way. And I suppose that alchemy of that, I don't fully understand. The thing that occurs to me is, well, this could, of course, just be temperamental to me as your friend, but I find that approach fundamentally encouraging. Maybe it's just the thing about trust. It is easy, particularly as you say, once you've developed certain habits of identification as a Buddhist or certain ways of seeing things, it's easy to start simultaneously second-guessing your own experience and second-guessing your practice and too much reliance on acquired knowledge. And there's something about somebody showing up and being as present as what you just described with their own failing body, your eyesight, and then making something of that with this body of poetry that you've kind of carried with you. Yeah, somebody authentically inviting you to find your equivalent ground when you're practicing and trust yourself, trust that there is still a momentum that carried you into this in the first place. It's actually quite a rare gift, it strikes me. You know, alchemy is part of what broadly sometimes is to the hermeneutic tradition, because I suppose this is bringing us full circle, really. The first fundamental idea of that, or one of the fundamental ideas, is as above, so below, as in the microcosm, so in the macrocosm. I think what we're trying to do is understand why we're here, really. Why has reality decided to manifest you or me? What's that all about? 
on a poetic level. It comes back to an idea of the longing is to find our calling and to find our place in the world, to feel that we have a place in the world. And to do that, we have to become somewhat permeable to the world, to know our place in the world. We have to allow ourselves to be permeated by the world. A retreat can be both challenging, but also, I hope, quite playful. Because, of course, that also is another essential quality, a certain playfulness. It's Lila, isn't it, in the Buddhist terminology, the play of the Bodhisattvas. And I think one of the things we face, you know, particularly this year of the pandemic and all this, well, heartbreaking ecological crisis that we face, and, well, anyway, I won't enumerate everybody knows what's going on and somehow we have to have resilience and i think to have some sort of resilience there's got to be a lot of playfulness there you know i hope the retreat would be fun as well would have lila would have some joy in it of course there's a lot of joy to be found in the body and the imagination and the mind something that's joyfully moving maybe that's not too much stuff <laughs> we'll see what we can do that's all fantastic there's so many different ways there that will hopefully people find a way into in terms of just wanting to come and we'll find out what kind of space it is for them yeah so thanks very much Paramander both for being willing to talk about it today but also just been willing to show up and do it and kind of just make this available for people at a time when they really need this kind of space well I need it too you know (laughs) keeps me going I'm glad to hear it's of mutual benefit And thank you for tuning in to this podcast. I hope you've heard something there between trust, play, resilience, freedom, and joy that might tempt you to join (laughs) us for a home retreat and in a way, a chance to redefine your own life in the spaces that you are now, I'm sure, overly accustomed to, just the chance to transform your house, your home into a space of practice. You can also do that other times on the Dharma Toolkit. As you may know by this point, we have six days a week two sits a day, just every day, join other people, sit down, smile at each other, build up that kind of repetition of connection and warmth and community that is often the thing that makes it easier to get through these kinds of challenges that everybody's facing at the moment through COVID. I certainly love whenever I go to those sessions, just the familiarity of something, but also the preciousness of it. It never feels like something I could possibly take for granted. I might resist showing up sometimes, if I'm being honest, but when I do, I'm always glad I did. I'm pretty sure the retreat with Paramanda is going to be some of the same quality, the best use of your time you could probably conceive of. So I hope you'll be able to join us. I'm just bigging you up now, Paramanda. This is well, I don't know time. If I'm outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would. I'm going to go that far. I hope you'll be able to join us for daily meditation. I hope you'll particularly be able to come and join us for the Alchemical Heart from January the 15th for a week at the Dharma Toolkit. Look out for the weekly emails telling you all about it. If you're not a member already, come to thebuddhistcenter.com slash toolkit and sign up. And we'll be back with more podcast episodes and more of everything relatively soon. But for now, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from Paramanda. Yeah, goodbye.